Hello, patrons, and welcome to the May patron special for May 2018. This month, we are talking about the movie Contact with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. Tay the and the wee listeners! <laughs> yes! <laughs> the two and a half hour long adaptation of a Carl Sagan novel, which I have also read. I think Richard has maybe read it as well, although Years I'm putting ago. words in his mouth. Years ago. I w- when, around when the movie came out, actually, but... Uh, yeah, I saw this movie when it first came out in 1997. I have revisited it a few times over the years. It is, I would not say that it's one of my favorite movies, but I always enjoy watching it. And it's it's a very singular experience because I just don't think there are a lot of movies like it. Yeah, um, I remember being really excited for this movie when it was coming out. Like, I really wanted to see it. I read the book ahead of watching the movie and i really liked it but i don't actually remember having seen it having seen it since so uh as far as i know this is the first time i've seen this movie since i was 15 and oh that's I, interesting we'll have a different different experience of it for sure then yeah but i can definitely see it being a very comfortable movie it's a i really i i like the themes of it the themes are certainly something that we have talked about in our various podcasts over the years um jodie foster is of course incredible in it matthew mcconaughey less so but we'll talk about him um poor matthew mcconaughey i don't think this is a great movie i think this is a movie that's extraordinarily bloated in a lot of ways like the first that the first half hour is essentially prologue and i'm not sure it's crucial to the rest of the movie um it's something that if you were a if you wanted to you could cut 30 to 45 minutes out of it and make a much tighter movie but given the scope of it given these uh, uh given given its themes given the plot of it i can also see why it needed to be an epic because it is about a fundamental sea change in human history and it is i mean it's a movie that is taking place over roughly 10 years it's implied so, see, I completely disagree with you. I think that this is a fantastic movie. I think it's probably in the top 20 of movies made in the 90s, at least. Um, I think it holds up extraordinarily well. I, I do think that it, it it sags a little bit in the middle portion. But, but for a movie that's two and a half hours long, I think it does an admirable job of using all of that running time appropriately. I mean, I'd be curious to get your opinion about what you think could be cut out of it because 30 to 45 minutes cut out of the movie would be a lot of the movie cut out. Yeah, and, and, and this I, might- I think that you need all of that because what what is interesting to me about Contact is that – and I'm not very familiar with the work of Robert Zemeckis. I have seen a few of his movies. He probably most famously directed um, the Back to the Future trilogy and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Um, and Forrest Gump, I guess, as well. That's another famous one. Hmm. Um, but I think this is really akin to an epic, as you said. It's akin yeah. to a Lawrence of Arabia or or a movie like that. And and I guess I admit that a lot of that has to do with my own. I don't like to sit and watch a movie for two and a half hours. I am just not that guy. I, I around the two hour mark of doing anything, and I get itchy. So. Uh, that's part of it. But I think me. that's more but I think that's more a fault of the movie than it is of yourself, to be honest, because I also I, I don't really I mean, it's hard to say, right? Like I am not someone who gets hung up on the length of movies. Yeah. I have watched I watched Barry Lyndon a couple weeks ago and that's like over three hours long and I was riveted by it the entire time. Um 
I don't find myself getting antsy if the movie uses the running time appropriately. And I mean, we are going to, it's difficult to compare Stanley Kubrick to Robert Zemeckis. I mean, Zemeckis has made some great movies, but he is not Stanley Kubrick, I think you could say. (laughs) That is true. I mean, mean, Robert Zemeckis, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, Robert Zemeckis is an entertainer and Stanley Kubrick actively tried to make you hate him. Um, Mission accomplished in my case. Good job. <laughs> but if you haven't seen Baron Lyndon, watch it because it's really good. Um, maybe you wouldn't like it. I don't know. But well, what I think is it like Robert Robert Zemeckis always has this. It's actually kind of interesting. It's an interesting comparison to compare Robert Zemeckis and and uh, Stanley Kubrick actually because both of them have a reputation for being uh, very visual filmmakers mm. and, and and storytellers. And I think that the reputation in Robert Zemeckis's part is is less well earned than Stanley Kubrick. I don't I don't think that Robert Zemeckis, as you joked around, is as good a director as Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, but I think he does a really good job with Contact. And I think that this, you know, yeah, this is one of those books that a lot of people thought was unfilmable, but I I think he does an admirable job of, of adapting it. I mean, I guess I'll put it this way: I I was sitting dutifully with the movie. Until the moment about 30, 35 minutes in when she gets the signal. And from then on, I'm like, all right, this is a fucking movie. This is great. Like the – and part of that is I know where the story is going. And I know the backstory, yes, it's important. Yes, it's character development. But it's nothing actually happening. Once that – and I actually – so I ended up imagining a version of the movie that begins at that moment. Yes, you get that great – opening scene with the pan out through all of the broadcasts over the past, you know, roughly 60, 70 years. And uh, it, it let, let's say it zooms out into her eye as an adult listening to that. And she, then she hears the signal. And then from then she's running and, you know, oh, we need to change. And, and from there, not only is it a bang zoom beginning, but I think at that movie, at that point, the movie begins to subvert Independence Day, which is, which, I think is part of why I find this movie so singular, because as we were talking about uh, with the X-Files movie, uh, the 90s believed that aliens were going to invade and kill us. That we that if we had contact with an alien species, they would automatically be hostile. And this is a movie with, which says, no, yes, it would be scary because it is a step into something bigger and something that we can't understand yet, but it's also wonderful. Like, what What if the aliens are wonderful people and that meeting them is going to be such a beautiful thing? And I really like that theme in this movie, and I love that. I, I mean, this is obviously coming out of Carl Sagan, but it's such a generous and loving theme that, I don't know, that's, I guess, one of the reasons this movie does stick out for its era. Yeah, no, certainly. And and I do want to talk more about the the ways in which the movie is is very different from a lot of science fiction representations of of aliens, but I don't want to get away from talking about the the structure and sort of the tone and the feel of the movie first because I think that your I think your criticism is valid, but I also think that cutting out the first half hour yeah. of the movie would make it a very different movie. Part of the reason why I like this movie so much is that it is not afraid to be um, to be languid, and it is mm. not afraid to take its time. Um, it's it's a slow movie, and 
I think that you know, obviously, still, it's it's a commercial movie. It made almost two hundred million dollars. Yeah. It was a success, but I, you know, we're not talking about Solaris or or Stalker. We're not talking about Tarkovsky here. But uh, it, it is the case that I will defend the first half hour of the movie because part of what the movie is saying and part of what Carl Sagan was interested in saying and one of his you know one of the things he was always fascinated by and arguing with is this idea of the tension between science and commerce and mm. you know what pure pure research versus applied research or applied science and what is what is valid what is not valid what is a good use of money what is not a good use of money and I, the first half hour of the movie i mean talk about you know, a striking opening scene where we start out at Earth and as the camera pulls yeah. back through the solar system and the Kuiper belt and all that stuff, the 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 sound mixing in it is extraordinarily well done. You know, where where it starts out with the Spice yeah, Girls yeah. and then you get further and further <laughs> out and start, you know, big band music and stuff like that. And I love it so much and it sets the perfect tone for the movie. And then aside yeah. from that, I think that you need you you need the backstory of what little Ellie, right? You need to see her as a child. You need to get that sense of wonder because key to her perf- key to Jodie Foster's performance in this movie is is really getting across a childlike sense of wonder all throughout the movie. And and she is not a cynical person. She is not um someone no. who is playing a game or anything like that she is really just in this because she loves communicating and she loves talking to people and she loves science and she loves astronomy and i think that's really key to it um yeah like i said i think it would make it a different movie if it started out very quick no it's true and it also does get some of a sense of why exactly all of this is so important to her i mean Drummond, you know, practically says at a couple points, like, you're in a very weird field, you're waste, you're ruining your career. He, I mean, I think he legitimately seems to think she's wasting her talents doing what she's doing. If she would just play the fucking game and, you know, do a quote unquote real research assignment, she would be getting a Nobel someday. Like that, that, that seems to be, you know, why is she chasing, as she, you know, jokes about it, little green men when she could be having a lauded scientific career um and i which is not necessarily a which is not necessarily wrong it's only because we are in a movie that has the existence of aliens that her field of research is at all viable um in the real world quote unquote she might be better served career wise but this is somebody who has this deep sense of loss this deep sense of make wanting to make contact with another person whether that's her father or whatever and this is where she has found her meaning and she will throw away everything to to do this and it is true that the early segments make contextualize her stubbornness in a way yeah contextualize her stubbornness and i think also you know we, we we would be remiss if we did not mention that the end of the movie would not be as emotionally resonant as as it is yeah. if we didn't know who her father was you know i think this all works very nicely now i think it's an open question um you know whether or not the movie is is too long i mean again i don't think it is but 
I, you know, that's 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 probably a question that is Maybe. unanswerable because every people yeah. have different preferences. A little too long for me, I think, is the way you would may, might phrase that most accurately. But yeah, I mean, it it is a long movie, and I'm not gonna not gonna deny no. that. But but I also think that that what's so striking about about Contact in particular is is sort of the purity of the vision of it that. Mm. I don't. I don't know how this movie got made. Frankly, I think that it's kind of you know astonishing that that it did. And I, I I read the I've read the novel a couple of times. I enjoy the novel. I think that I don't know if Carl Sagan wrote it by himself. Do I think you know? He, I think he, I I feel like he did co-write it with somebody, but I'm not a hundred percent. Didn't he write? Didn't he co-write it with his wife, or or she co-wrote it with him, or or something like that? I'm I feel sure. like I heard that. We, uh, ladies and gentlemen, at tra- uh, at uh, listeners, we don't do any research before this. So that is true. Well, that's not always true, but sometimes <laughs> it's true. Um, I mean, but we- regardless, you know, I I think that the the book is. The book is interesting, but I would not, you know, put it on the shelf as as, as good as like high literature or anything. Um, and and I think it's also interesting because Carl Sagan is sort of like not forgotten necessarily, but I don't know that a lot of people that are younger than us really know who he is. Mm. And that's kind of sad because he is really key to this sort yeah. of expansive understanding of of science and the power of science and and the all the popularization of, of it. That, that, yeah, that, yeah, the, the popularization of it, and and now what we have is people like Neil deGrasse Tyson going online on Twitter and being pedantic assholes. Yeah, the, uh, Neil. Uh, I I mean, I watched a little bit of the Neil deGrasse, and, and, and I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson did the Contact reboot, and I did not like it really. I just, you mean Cosmos? Cosmos. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know. I will. Sagan is just so much more poetic than Tyson. I mean that that's the I I love at the end of they should have sent a poet because Sagan kind of was. He he is very good at that and, and particularly his voice and the, again the very philosophical and elegant style that he has. Again, there is a sense of wonder and beauty to all of this. Um the movie is much of the business of the movie is spent finding the same value in the limits of religion and the limits of science and finding a kind of common mysticism between the two. And that era of mysticism is filled with such ineffable beauty, which is a a very large refutation of one of the major criticisms of science from a religious view. Oh, they're taking all of the mystery and beauty all of out of life. Oh, they're we murder to dissect. And this movie is saying no, like the limits. You know, science is a way of finding that wonder and truth in the world, just as religion is a way of finding wonder and truth in the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I and I think that that you know we let's we can talk about Matthew McConaughey's character as opposed to um, Jodie Foster's character, but. Yeah, that's certainly true, and I think understanding why the sun rises and sets doesn't make sunrises and sunsets yeah. any less beautiful. Um, but I also think that like it's tough, right? Because part of what is running all throughout this movie is this idea of pure research, and and what Ellie is doing is essentially pure research. She is not doing anything that has any practical application, yeah. and of course, it turns out that it kind of does because she makes contact with an alien civilization who um, instruct the world how to build a machine um, that does something 
which is one of the central mysteries of the movie. Did she go anywhere? What did the machine actually do? And and we'll talk about that as well. But I find her to be an interesting character because, A, she's a woman in a male-dominated mm. field. And the movie doesn't make a big deal about that. But I, I, I do think that some of the treatment that she gets in the yeah. movie, uh, specifically from the other, from the male characters, is is a part of that. And I also think that Matthew McConaughey is is kind of playing he's playing he's playing a more traditionally female role. He's a supporting mm. uh, love interest. And I find yeah. that interesting. I mean, I don't know that that the movie gets enough credit for its its gender politics. No, it's true. I mean, it's interesting because um I watched this with a friend a couple of friends and we were joking like nineties feminism every time like she says something and she gets dismissed and then Drummond says something and everyone's like, wow, that's so interesting. I mean, I, I know the only other female character in the movie, the Angela Bassett character, the only conversation the two of them really have is about a dress. So I mean, like there, there is – this is still a movie of its era, but I think it also is subtle about the fact that this is such a male-dominated field. If you grab a group of people who would be dealing with this thing – at this time, they all—they largely would be men, and it does add to her subtle feeling of out of placeness there. Um, and yeah. also, it also does kind of explain why, like for you know, the 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 blind guy played by James Woods, and this is a movie where I don't know any character names. All I know are actor names, but you know, he's. The the guy who's been there with her the entire time, like, uh, from a career-wise, he's the guy who was always, you know, her support on that. And, like, she does have people who recognize her in, her intelligence and do want to work with her and all of that. And it is – I mean, this is the speech that Drummond makes about how, oh, I wish we could live in a world that was fair. And we all – he's talking on text about how – she wasn't allowed to go partially because she does she admits she doesn't believe in god but i mean her gender had to have come up in some of the conversations with the committee yeah yeah well i i think that there's a couple things there i mean number one i, I you know as much as that angela bassett um jodie foster scene is 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 a little you know i mean you you could argue it's it's a little uh, a, a little sad but i also like it because it it shows that there is sort of a solidarity there between yeah. women and this is something i've experienced in my own life about you know like finding the queer person in a in a group of mostly straight people it's and you're true. like oh god thank you like <laughs> you know uh now i can actually talk to someone um but the other part of it that i think is 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 striking as well is that ellie is She's a woman. She is gendered as a woman. She obviously sees herself as a woman. The movie portrays her as one. Um, but at the same time, there is nothing really coded about her as as a female, as a woman. Um, and the other part of it, too, is that her idealism and her lack of interest in playing the game is is contrasted and compared with other characters who are men you know hamlin for instance and she are very different people and have very different ideas about science the role of science what they should be doing what the purpose of it is what the return on investment is whereas a lot of the other characters in the movie are almost 
they agree with Ellie, I think. You know, the the people in positions of power are the ones that are making all the decisions in this movie, and they are the ones that are making the decisions yeah. that Ellie and the people that she works with find questionable. But one of the one of the things that I think is so striking about it is that it never really makes any judgments about who is right or wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think it recognizes that there is an unfortunate practicality of that. I mean, these these the, the, these antennas are not cheap to build or maintain, and it's they, it does need to be paid for. We unfortunately do live in capitalism, and and we do have finite resources. And building this machine, yes, it could be something that everybody wants to do, but it has to be paid for. Somebody has to build it. This is a practical reality which is underpinning the idealism of people like ellie who you know and again ellie might want to work for free on this she might be able to figure out a way i don't care but again the telescope still needs to be paid for there and they are going yeah and there are only you know 24 hours in a day seven days a week and as we said her her area of research is questionable given limited resources given limited time on this telescope Somebody has to make the judgment, well, which project is going to see more results? I mean, who do we give that to? It doesn't it, it is a decision that needs to be made. And and you do get the sense that that the decision is being made in good faith. I mean, the, yeah. it would be very the, the movie doesn't really have any cynicism in it, even the other characters who you could argue are cynical. And that is one of the things that I love about it the most is that it does have a sense of not necessarily optimism, but you know Ellie's line about which you kind of had said half of, um, you know where where he ta- he's talking about the world isn't fair and et cetera et cetera, and she says why that's funny. I always thought the world is what we made it. Yeah. Um, and that right there, I think, is the key to understanding the two competing philosophies of this movie. Because is it fair that Ellie didn't get picked to go? Maybe, maybe not, but. There are ways around it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, uh, but and, and, and it, I mean that entire the exchange about God comes from Drummond reading the room, right? Like she's asked this question, he sees that oh shit, they want it. We don't even know anything about his actual beliefs, right? I he could be a complete atheist, he could be Richard Dawkins, but he sees that these people want to hear God mentioned, and he says it. And I mean, he he. he that's him not playing fair in that in that in that way, right? Like, like you get you get the sense almost he is taking a little bit of a an unfair advantage or not being completely of integrity when he says, "Oh, the world isn't fair. I wish it could be so." He's not acting in in, in the way to make the world fair. But you know, as you said, well, it's not a well. No. The the fact that the world isn't fair just makes me think about the fact that that you know he's a he's a white straight guy and and. You know, oh, the world's not fair is an easy way for people in positions of power and positions of privilege to to continue um, to to put people that don't have privilege in their place. Frankly, yeah, yeah, he could have, but it's also the kind. I mean, this movie has the closest thing this movie has to an antagonist is the uh, is the religious guy who blows up the first machine, and he's also shown to be very disturbed, and so there is almost a pity you feel for him yeah it's like the first time you see him the camera may as well like start (laughs) going in and out and zooming in on him like with the soundtrack screaming this guy is crazy (laughs) um you know drummond from what the other characters say yes he's a bit of a blowhard he's a grandstander he likes the attention 
But it is also suggested that he is a good scientist. He is someone who does believe in the value of science, who does believe in the value of research. He's just managed to figure out the PR end of it a little better, and he's a little bit of a dick to Ellie, but at the same time, you also can't blame him for wanting this that badly, and he, the difference between him and her is he has fewer scruples. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. But he's not well, a villain. About... Right? Yeah. No, but he's not a vi- right, but he's not a villain that that's very true. And I think that that's key to understanding the movie. I mean, the movie doesn't really have villains, you know. And this is what it, I think that's what what also is, strikes me about this movie so much, especially in the the era we live in now. Um but this movie believes that people can have good faith mm. disagreements and still respect each other. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily the world we live in now, but, and I don't even know that it was the world we live in in 1997. I don't even know if it was the world we ever lived in, but it is the case that that is an ideal to, to strive for. And I don't think that it is a coincidence. I think it is very intentional that the only out and out antagonist that contact has as you said, is the religious fanatic who blows up the first machine. Uh, the Christian who, who, terrorist. Who uses very... violence to to get to his aims because he has no argument. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting they make it a Christian terrorist because you can definitely tell this was pre-9-11. But uh, yeah, that that's a... And now we have incel terrorists. Isn't it great? Hey. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is a movie that is about its... The closest it has to an antagonist is that fear of the unknown, is fear. And many of the characters seem to think that, oh, the fear is too great, this could be too dangerous. Ellie is the one who's saying, well, no no intelligent civilization would do this. Like, this is obviously a gift and a message. And when they break through that fear and that doubt, again, it's wonderful. And it is the next step in a new era of humanity. Yeah, because I that's the other that's the other thing about the movie that I love so much is is the scene um when they're trying to decide what what to do about this this machine blueprints that they've gotten from from Vega that they 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 have the generals in the room and the generals in the room are saying, "Well, you know, why would the entire army might spill out?" And they, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And and that is fair, right? I mean, that is that is a, a you know, you shouldn't assume that that they are going to be nice and wonderful, but at the same time that is just one opinion of many and and that's kind of ellie's point and i think that's the movie's point is that yeah the unknown might be scary the unknown might be frightening the unknown might make you a little squicked out but absent any information there's no real reason to be afraid of it yeah and let's also he that guy is going in good faith too because this is literally his job to think about the possible disasters that can happen to him and start to come up with plans to think about that i mean somebody does need to voice the what if it is a weapon what do we do about that right right and and as as, i mean there's that point with the rob lowe character you know just talks and you know ellie is about to shoot him down and angela bass is all like look no opinions are going to be shut down today they're probably they they end up not listening to rob lowe they they don't listen to the generals but it is right for them to voice that opinion because 
I mean, this is a much more Captain Picard version of a science meeting at a White House, right? Like, we, we have to hear everybody's opinions, and then we're going to... Dis- yeah, we're going to discuss them, we're going to look at them, and then we're going to come up with a decision. And the decision here turns out to be, you know, I'm swayed by the arguments that say that this is an advanced race reaching out to us, and this is a good step. This is a good thing. Yeah, because that's the other part of it, too, that, that underpins the movie. And this is something that, that a couple different characters you know, t- mention at different points in the movie to, to dramatic effect, but this this con- concept of Occam's razor as well, right? And and sort of, you know, it's kind of become a cliche at this point. I think everyone yeah. listening to this knows what Occam's razor is. But, you know, it became a cliche for a reason. And and that is the kind of – that that's the way in which Ellie – approaches the world and interacts with the world and 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 she discovered this signal she's looking at the the blueprints of this machine and and you know i mean the most likely explanation is that they they built a machine to do what well i don't know but to destroy us why would they do that that doesn't make any sense like why invest all that time and energy in doing that it doesn't it, it, it would be the payoff there's no reason to do it um so that that i think is interesting as well yeah, I mean that that is very much a I mean one of Carl Sagan's thing is about the 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 fear that any race which has gotten any species which has gotten advanced enough technology gets the, advances that technology to the point where it discovers weapons, you know, very bad weapons and destroys itself. And it, the, the the one question that she says she would ask is, you know, how do we get through this technological adolescence? You didn't destroy yourselves. How do we get past that? And I think part of the reasoning is that any species which can get through that threshold, which can get over their weapons without destroying themselves, is going to be a species of peace. Is going to be a species that knows how to work together and wants to reach out. But yeah, certainly. But but doesn't that also? And this is where the movie, I think, dates itself a little bit because doesn't that seem like a quaint idea at this point? Oh I God! Mean, uh, like one of the <laughs> climate change is happening. Climate change is real. You know, it it, it is going to irrevocably alter. Uh, you know, the 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 form of the Earth and and our civilization. And no one really seems to be doing anything about it because it's this very slow moving crisis and and what i think is so interesting about that in context with with this movie is that yeah nuclear weapons were on everyone's mind yeah and how are you going to get through technological civilization without destroying yourself with nuclear weapons or something even more horrible that hasn't been invented yet but at the end of the day there's this other existential threat to human civilization that wasn't even on anyone's minds when this movie was made. Yeah, but I'm not sure if that undermines the point because whether it's nuclear weapons or climate change, it is the irresponsible use of technology, whether that, whether it's two, uh, two factions, which use nuclear weapons and start a war and starts nuclear winter and destroys the earth, or whether it's just the irresponsible dumping of chemicals into the lake and, uh, you know, the release of greenhouse gases and the other destruction of the environment. I mean, it is irresponsible use of technology. And, you know, again, on Sagan's mind was nuclear weapons, but I think you can amend climate change. I think you can amend whatever other tragically horrible thing is there, too. At some point, a civilization reaches a point where it can destroy itself. Why doesn't it? How does it not? 
And I think yeah, that's the yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Well, let's talk about um, Matthew McConaughey's character then because I find this character fascinating. I don't think the movie is as fascinated with him as I am, hmm. but it's... I'm never really sure what function he serves apart from acting as a as a sounding board for Ellie. I mean, I think Whoa. that he makes her stronger and she makes him stronger in terms of their arguments. And certainly he is the love interest, the one that got away. But I don't know. I don't know. What, what do you well, think? See, it was funny, like... Especially knowing now Jodie Foster is a lesbian, like, the two of them have no chemistry. I I, I don't really like Matthew McConaughey, as I said, but, you know, as two people, I'm not sure that they work as a couple, but as two halves of the main philosophical theme of the movie, I mean, she is the science, she is a representative of science, he is a symbol of religion, and the two of them end up together at a movie that, which has said that again, the limits of science and the li- limits of religion are the same. The function of both is the same. The two of them can go hand in hand together and, frankly, serve each other best when they are not in conflict. And the two of them end up together. So I think that – I, I mean they make a lot of sense from a symbolic point for me. You know, it's a literalization. I can see that, that, yeah. I mean I think you're right that they, they don't have a lot of chemistry together. I actually think <laughs> they have the most chemistry when they're arguing with each other. <laughs> Yeah, because well, and, and, which does make sense for them because their arguments are cerebral intellectual and they both are cerebral intellectual characters. He's a little more comfortable with the physicality than she is as evidenced by the morning after scene. But um, yeah, I, 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 I think that is, as you say, they do have a wonderful intellectual relationship to, together. And maybe that's what they but want. I- yeah, but I also think that that one. I think the Matthew McConaughey character is is the part of the movie that that I I dislike. Not well. I shouldn't even say I dislike it. I just I don't think it works as well as it was intended to because yeah. fundamentally Matthew McConaughey's character doesn't really seem like a person to me. He seems like a collection of ideas and a vehicle for the movie to get across some yeah. ideas and to get across some plot points and to get where it needs to go. I don't remember if the novel had this problem as well, but I don't think it did. It just seems to me that you don't really ever get a sense of who this guy is. And which, again, is interesting for a movie in 1997 because that is kind of how the female love interest works. They are a vehicle yeah. for the man to to get through what they want to do or to get the plot where it needs to go. And you're not really interested in the internal life of the love interest. So it is a little, you know, I don't want to overstate how radical it is, but but it is kind of, of, of interesting in that sense. Yeah, I do find it more of a plot device. But as you say, it's a Hollywood movie. He's the shallow love interest. And if you make your lead a woman, that's what's necessarily going to follow, I think, if you're going to follow formula. Well, if you're going to follow formula, certainly, although I think it would have been interesting if, if uh, Ellie was a lesbian. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I feel like we're not talking about him as much as we should be, maybe. But then again, I, I don't know that there's much to say about him. Like, again, everything he- that's interesting about his character is interesting in conjunction with Ellie. Yeah, I find him. Inst- I he's an he's a mouthpiece for religion in this movie, and a version of religion which is a which is very different from the normal scientific rationalist view of religion. Like you, we all know 
those, I listen to atheist podcasts, I'm a free thinker, I like freedom of assholes, you know, their view on religion is that this is a bad thing, which has been bad for people the entire time, and do you know how horrible the Crusades are, and nothing good has ever come out of religion, and all, and it's, and at, and after a while, they're just, shut the fuck up, dude, because it's always a dude, but shut the fuck up, dude, because, you know, you, you're just being a, you know, and, and, and Palmer Joss is somebody who argues very passionately for religion as an avenue into truth, and a lot of his views of God seem almost... Like, he's not exactly talking about a dude in the sky, right? He's not talking about religious dogma. I mean, he's really... It's less religion and more theology in his way. I mean, this is... and It's more mysticism, and that's the version of religion that he argues for, and that's, frankly, the version of religion that I find more interesting and valid, not necessarily the rituals and the way it's practicing. We never see him praying. We never see him going to church. He's talking about yeah, God. Yeah, we don't... God is a philosophical idea for him. Yeah, we have no idea what religion he is. He may not ascribe to any yeah. organized religion at all, and... and I, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I I too find the whole new atheist thing tiresome and and, and a little bit annoying. Um, and you know, I am even so uncomfortable with it that I don't identify as an atheist. Yeah, um, which I think though, is. I mean, I think it's funny you know, because you, you don't believe in God, but you would never call yourself an atheist because fuck those guys. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's kind of I don't know. Although then again, I start thinking about it, and it's like, oh well, is it like people that don't. That, that, that don't call themselves feminists because they think feminists give themselves a bad name or something. I don't know. But yeah, I, I that's the thing though, right? Like he is part of what makes his character a little difficult for me to swallow sometimes is that he's almost too perfect and a religious person that a scientist can agree or disagree yeah, with. Yeah, Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I don't there certainly he yells a lot well he doesn't yell at Ellie certainly they argue and they have a really hot time with it but at the end of the day I don't really get the sense that he's taking it all that seriously and I don't get the sense that she's taking it all that seriously so it's just kind of they're there for a sounding board for each other and and that's fine but he's I think he's probably one of the least interesting parts of the movie I mean he almost comes off as how we thought, you know, being a philosophical writer would be when we were in college. Like, you just spend your time thinking about shit, and then every so often you write a book and go to Larry King. And, I mean, it it doesn't seem like he has any particular angst about spirituality at all. He feels very comfortable with it. He certainly argues for it and all of that. He certainly has questions that he's still asking, but he seems to be leisurely enjoying the journey. And I guess maybe this is a way in which Matthew McConaughey is very well cast because I can never view Matthew McConaughey as getting too upset about anything. And <laughs> Yeah, that that's certainly true. It's why I didn't buy him in True Detective. I'm like, he's too angsty for, for the McCon. But, um, right? Like, he just is almost this, like... Stoner religious philosopher, he's the kind of, yeah. Look, he's the kind of guy that I imagine really likes Jimmy Buffett. That's yes, <laughs> that's who I think Matthew McConaughey is. Yeah, and I mean, like, and and I think he is somebody who recognizes that being able to earn a living and get a bit of fame doing what he does is 
he's very lucky. He is in a good position for that. So again, I don't think he worries too much about it. This, certainly, he very much likes Ellie. He is, I mean, and his behavior is... His behavior is one of those acceptable movie behaviors that, like, if you think about it in real life, is a little fucked, but um, because he really keeps popping up. And, uh, you know, even allowing for this being a small world, uh, which I can buy, he keeps popping up. But, yeah, beyond that, yeah, there is nothing, no angst in this man's life. Not to the degree that there is angst in Ellie's life. He is not a... I don't want to say that she's an incomplete person, but she is certainly, or at least no more incomplete than anybody is, but there are, she has deep daddy issues that she's working on, and I think at the end of the movie, this experience helps her figure them out and move on to something deeper. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the end of the movie then, because I, I you know, we, we're leading up to this, and I think that, you know, we had to lead up to it, but, and and the the, the end of the movie is is very... It's very intimidating and at the same time it's it's comforting because I'm never really sure entirely what to make of it and yeah a lot of it is not really supposed to be taken at face value. I mean we can talk about the vegans, what are the aliens, what are they not, you know, but that's not the point of it. The point of it is to get us to a place of accepting Ellie's decision to really push the idea that she had an experience and that that's yeah. really what this comes down to is that religion and science are both different ways of getting at experiences and whatever else is in, whatever else happens whatever else you can prove or disprove she comes out of this experience a yeah. different person than going into it yeah her experience resembles a religious mystical experience or a psychedelic experience in the way that it fucks with time in the way that is a personal vision just granted to her that puts everything into perspective that is a touch of the ineffable that she is only able to understand and i mean the whole well i look like your father because that's a form you're comfortable with is a literalization of this, well, we can't really, she can't really explain what her experience really was, because it's something that goes beyond words, goes to something much deeper and fundamental, but this is the closest metaphor she can come up with for what it's like. And, I mean, there is a degree to which it is irrelevant whether it happened or not. What matters is the truth that she's gotten out of this, which is the point of faith after a while, which is the point of science. We may not be able to know exactly what's going on, but we can come up with a working model and a process to explain it for now. Yes, and I, I mean, I, I, I think that's all right. And the other part of it too, of course, is that I mean, something happened. I and I oh, think yeah. that's that's what the point of oh, well, there was eighteen hours of static recorded, and I honestly don't understand how eighteen hours of static was recorded in nineteen ninety seven because there were no eighteen hour tapes. But aside well, from that, part of the implication that I've gotten from the way the technology looks at the end of the movie towards the beginning is that. Working on this thing has advanced a lot of other technologies very much. Um, They've reverse engineered other tech from it. I mean, the satellite video hookup from Mir that Haddon has at the end was probably not available in 1997. It seems like they got a lot of information out of this project. 
again, this is – it's implied to be – we have a four-year time skip and then several more years spent building the machine and all. So there is time. I don't know. I, I I don't think that's true. I, I, I think that existed in 1997. I mean they used to do remote satellite uplinks for, for the news. Well, yeah, but where they always – yeah, and fair, and maybe it's a bit uh, – nicer because it's a movie but i don't know it 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 it, it's the kind of thing where i guess you could read it either way but either way yes this video camera that she has on the edge and is hyper cutting edge sure and it's also nice of course because the experience is not what the audience thinks it's going to be and it's not what ellie thinks it's going to be you know certainly the wormhole stuff is is interesting i mean it's nothing we really need to talk about because it's stuff we've seen before uh but then she gets to this place. Did she actually go to this place? Did she not? What exactly happened while she was yeah. gone? What kind of experience did she have? Um, time distillation effects. I mean, they mentioned Einstein in this movie. You know, was she actually going here, going there? 18 hours of static. What does that mean about how much time she was actually gone or how much time she experienced? And it's also, at the end of the day, I really appreciate the end of the movie because the aliens just send these blueprints around to, to different species because they just like want to yeah. say hi to them. And it's not even, there's no follow-up indicated, right? Like it's not like the aliens are handing over a document for how to join the galactic civilizations. It's just, yeah, we're here. Yeah. You're not alone anymore. Um, we'll see you again at some point. We're in no hurry. You should be in no hurry either. And, there's something really interesting about that because at the end of the day, it speaks to, I think, the point of the movie, which is that just approaching everything in good faith and just not really expecting anything and being happy with whatever you get. In a way, it's almost like the answer to how do you get that technolo- past that technological adolescence is answered. You have to figure that out on their own. What the aliens really give is just hope that there is something else you can strive for. This is a goal. There's an intergalactic community. You you have an invitation to join it. Figure out how to get there. Use your own ingenuity and creativity because, I mean, I think this is one of the things that the Federation always angst about is how do we make contact with other civilizations without – changing them or 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 moving them in any way and this is kind of a good way of doing that yes now we've got a pinch of people who believe in something greater and they're going to work and they're going to strive and yes that is a shot in the arm to humanity to get them to wake up and get them to work on things but how they do it is going to be completely up to them humanity is going to evolve in the way it does maybe just slightly faster yeah, and there's always, you know, there's always this idea that that finding out an alien civilization would either unite the world or or cause the world to to sort of collapse into into chaos and disorder and and neither seem true. I mean, like, yeah. you know, the end of the movie, Ellie is at the VLA and she's giving a little tour to the kids and she's being very nice to them and she's talking about how they're building new radio telescopes and they're going to be able to see further into space than ever before, hear further into space than ever before. But it doesn't really seem like life on Earth has radically changed. Yeah. It just seems to be kind of the same. And I think that's that's a really interesting idea that that finding out that we were not alone is not really going to is not really going to change anything. Because Science at the slow. end of the day, like even though it's unclear what happened when Ellie went into that machine, 
they did contact an alien civilization and yeah. they did send something. So at least that is, you know, I mean, I guess it would be different if aliens came to New York City and started walking around Times Square, but that's not what happened. Yeah, and this is also the vegans saying, you know, you've got to figure it out. The next step is up to you. You know, this has been done for billions of years. We don't know if they're going to send another message in 500 years and check up. I, I mean, to a degree, it's irrelevant to Ellie at that point because she will have been long dead. But what 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 it matters is the renewed hope. And I mean, science does progress and build on itself. And this may the the I feel like these events would lead to more interest in space, more stuff like that. Maybe there, maybe this version of the world does a lot more space missions at a time where in the real world they they were heavily ramping down uh i mean maybe you get elon musk a good 20 years earlier god forbid but um (laughs) well we should probably wrap this up but i think the other thing that i want to briefly touch on uh, before we go is the, the the use of real footage of Bill Clinton yeah. in the movie was controversial at the time. He was pissed, and, right? Um, I don't know. I well, I read the White was... House. The White House made a statement, basically, like you know about it, and the heavy implication was, listen, you know, this movie was released. We're not going to cause a big deal, but nobody do this again. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, certainly it it, it is uh, a taboo to do that. And I think Contact broke a couple of taboos, and one of them has held and one of them is not held. I, to, to my knowledge, I do not know of another movie that, that used real footage of a sitting president yeah. um, in, in, to, to fictionalize, to, to basically like the context being fictional. Um, so at least in that regard, that has not really... Um, that has not really gone anywhere. And I also find that the use of Bill Clinton to be sort of odd, like I don't... I don't yeah. know why they did that. I'm, I'm sure they had their reasons, but but it seems like a lot of work for no real reason. Well, um, the I I feel like in the book there's a black woman as the president. I think I read that or remembered that, unless I'm confusing sure. it with something else. But and I thought that I thought for a moment that that's who the Angela Bassett character was because holy shit, I would vote for her for president. But um. <laughs> Yeah, it's Bill Clinton is a little cutesy. Like I had forgotten that he did Forrest Gump, but oh yeah, no, he really likes that trick. He just wants to keep doing that trick again, and it it it, it comes off a little gimmicky in this. But at the same time, it's trying to create a version of verisimilitude here, which I can't necessarily fault it. But I also don't feel like it would have been remiss if they had written another president just for the movie you know yeah yeah i i see your point and and then the other thing too is that they they used um real cnn uh anchors um to, mm. to sort of act like there was not even actual footage of them they they made these they made this for the movie they were they were it was scripted scenes and i remember at the time this was also controversial because i don't think this had happened before mm. and and that was the taboo that did not stick because that has happened a lot since then yeah i mean like 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 the the Larry King scene, like I remember, like Larry King has ha- has a very nice side business of appearing in movies as a way of showing us this character is actually kind of famous and knowledgeable in their field. Like he he's made a few bucks he, doing that, and that's really weird too. Because like I don't think he was working for CNN at the time. Maybe I, I could be wrong, but but wasn't he in Ghostbusters? Yes, he was. 
So I don't know. Uh-uh. I mean, CNN made a big deal of, of saying that like this would ne- they would never do this again, that it crossed a line. And of yeah. course, that got thrown out the window because they, they've always done that. Um, yeah, I, I guess. I, 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 again, people know, I guess, when they're watching a fictional movie. That, oh, well, let's give people credit. People know when they're watching a fictional movie that the news anchors are just a way of making it seem, you know, a way of doing exposition a little more elegantly and making the events have a bit of gravitas. And I guess people understand that. I was about to disagree with you, but I think in the spirit of the movie Contact, I will assume the best of people and not the worst. Uh I want to talk about my fan theory. Okay. Um, this character of Haddon, who we haven't talked about, he's really convenient, isn't he? He is somebody who intervenes in Ellie's life at moments that she desperately needs something. Uh, he gives her the he gives her her initial grant. He gives her the nudge about well, it's in three D. He lives in an airplane. He's living in Mir. I mean, is he an angel or a vegan or something? Because there is something really weird about him. I mean, there's something very creepy in his scenes, even though he is a 100% benevolent figure. Well, I think he reads creepy because he's old. And I'm not even saying that no, to be no. funny. I, I, I think that's why he reads as creepy, because a lot of people find old people creepy. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, I, I, I find it very nice that he has no designs on her. He is just legitimately, this is somebody who is really good in this field, whose career I am very interested in. And I have the ability to give her a boost and you know reach certain heights. That's all he cares about. He's not interested in her sexually and i guess we've seen enough movies and had the move me Too movement that there does feel some kind of threat there even yeah though none yeah. is implied even but he's and i and i also don't i also don't know i don't know how i feel about the movie maybe arguing that it's a a, a retired billionaire who sees the real value in this i there, there's a little bit of like Randy and John Galt's Gulch thing yeah. going on here, and that's the part of the the other part of the movie. I mean, this is not a perfect movie, and certainly there are parts of it that that are a little weird. I I don't think the movie is arguing anything necessarily in those scenes, but no. and he just has the money to sort of insulate himself from society and and to sort of like do whatever he wants. And if this is what he wants to do, then fine. Um, but I also think there's a there's an element of this is his baby. Like Ellie's work yeah. is very important to him because he rescued it from oblivion when she was almost out of money and has shepherded it through the process. And he, he like his yeah. bet paid off, you know, she, she discovered an alien civilization. So that's, that's pretty much it for him, I guess. Yeah. But then if my theory that he's actually a vegan who's on earth uh, to, facilitate this process then it becomes he's picked the candidate which i think is interesting i don't know though that 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 seems like a little i mean i'm not saying again fan this is this is a fan theory we are an internet show i am doing something internet-y listen at least i'm not like tv tropes and i'm like haddon is a time lord you know like they all fucking say or like ham listen listen ugh you have tried to get me into TV tropes for years. Other people have. I don't get it. I fundamentally do not understand why everyone goes nuts for TV tropes. Maybe it's the it's it's a site I hate read because they're all like Doctor Who fans and like why? Timey wimey, Richard. Timey wimey. All right. 
I think that's it for this month's patron special. This is the time when we thank you. Thank We're not you. Gonna ask you for money because you already give us money because you're listening to this because the only people that can listen to this besides me and Richard are people that give us $5 a month or more. So as Richard said, thank you. That's all we need to say. All right. Next month, we have been in discussions about what we are going to do for June, which is widely understood to be the month of pride for LGBTQIA. When is it straight people pride? Every day. We could well, wait, hey, listen. If you want us to do a straight pride episode, give us fifty dollars a month, and we will give you a straight pride episode. Sounds vaguely ominous. <laughs> yeah, so so next month uh, we're going to be doing this. This is Richard's idea, and I like it. Um, we're going to be talking about the kids in the hall, uh, which is a little strange, so bear with us. We will explain it, um, or perhaps I'll let Richard explain it because he's the one who came up with the idea. Well, it's certainly a uh, – I was watching Kids in the Hall with some gay friends of mine, and we were all laughing and talking about how we'd watched it as teenagers – and I realized that this was one of the first really major images of gay men that I had seen in high school. And I really think even the way they – even still the way that they depict gay issues and gay characters is really fucking subversive. And I did want to talk about that a bit and what that meant. So if that sounds interesting to you, you have to wait a month to hear it. We haven't even recorded it yet. I haven't watched any kids in the hall in years. But I am going to be very interested to see what I think about it and what our conversation is. And you should be too. That's it. Thank you very much once again. And we will be back at you in a month's time with another patron special.